Good morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And no, you are not watching the sermon from Easter Sunday. Uh, it is the Sunday after Easter, and we still say, He is risen. We praise and thank and glorify Jesus Christ, the crucified, buried, and risen King, who is risen now and forevermore. Uh, so, welcome to this time of worship for Old Oak Bible Church. My name is Steve Barbie. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you want to know more about Old Oak Bible Church, please visit our website, oldoakbiblechurch.org. There you can find past sermons, the audio versions of them. Uh, for the sermons of this month and in April, in the last part of March, we've been doing just this, recording them on video, so you can find them on our YouTube channel. It's likely where you are watching this right now. Um, just know that in recent days, there's, there are, you know, we've heard government leaders talk about developments of how to reopen our economy and our country back up, and the church leadership is in discussion and in prayer of what that will look like for us at Old Oak Bible Church. For now, we're, we're just trying to make the most of this time, seeking refuge in the Lord, trusting that he is at work in us through this. Uh, so be ready for announcements in the coming days, but for now, we, we wait, and, and we wait in faith in the Lord. You know, what we want to do before we get started in our time in God's Word is, is seek the Lord in prayer. Uh, so would you take a moment and pray with me as we get started? Infinitely and unchangingly good and gracious God, we come to you this morning, a morning that's different, and say this morning that you are still good, that you are still God, you reign in heaven. You sustain the universe by the word of your power. And we say this morning that Jesus is still real, still lives to intercede, is still crucified, buried, and risen. The gospel is still true. Oh, Lord, we rejoice. And we, we trust that your spirit is still active in us and through the world, drawing people to yourself through Christ. And, Lord, we thank you for truths that do not, do not change you place us on the rock that is higher than us today? And Father, we come to you uh, making requests to you, knowing that you hear our prayers as a good God who's made the way back to you through Christ. So Lord, we pray for our community. We've, we want to be steadfast in this prayer. So many needs around us in this time. And we think this morning, and especially the recent days, that this is a time of unprecedented financial constraints for many People are wondering when the next paycheck will come in, if it will come in, and how it will come in, and what will happen to their jobs. Lots of uncertainty. Lord, would you be peace in this storm? Would you direct us and teach us how you provide faithfully? And even more than that, would you direct and teach many that our refuge is not in our possessions, is not in our money. It's in you. Lord, we pray for our leaders, those who are trying to decide what is good and wise and best for us, when to go back in public and when to reopen and, and all of those decisions that go into that. Please give wisdom. Give wisdom to our state leaders, our federal leaders. Give wisdom to doctors. Give them perseverance, God, in what are likely many sleepless nights. And Lord, we long to see your churches filled. We pray that you use this time just to do that. We pray for churches besides our own, especially in Northeast Ohio. This morning, we pray for Grace Baptist Church in Brunswick. You would bless the pastors there. 
that they would faithfully preach your word, exalt Jesus, love your people, love their neighbors, and you would bless your people at Grace Baptist. God, we are not alone. Like Your people span the globe. Your church is global. We want to keep an eye on to that always. We pray this morning for the country of China, the billion people that live there. We pray for peace in that land. We pray that you would direct their government to humility, to doing what is best for their people, to opening doors to the gospel, to maintaining health and honesty in their, in their dealings in their government. We pray that the gospel would spread there, even in a dark time. And we pray your restraining mercy on COVID-19 in China. Lord, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would speak. Speak, O Lord. Shape and fashion us by your likeness. Conquer every rebel power that would seek to walk away from you and God draw us toward you in your word to help us see the marvelous things that are there. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm gonna begin with a quote this morning. It goes like this. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life. The life of toil and effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success which comes, not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, from bitter toil, and who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph. These are words spoken by President Theodore Roosevelt in his speech, the famous speech, The Strenuous Life. If you know Teddy Roosevelt, you know a man of achievement and vigor. Even though Roosevelt died at the early age of 60, he worked as a police commissioner, a state legislator, and the governor of New York State. He owned and worked a ranch in the Dakotas. He fought as a rough rider in the Spanish-American War. He served his two terms as president and even ran for what was an unprecedented third term. He oversaw the construction of the Panama Canal. He wrote 35 books. He read tens of thousands of books, several a day, often in multiple languages. He explored hundreds of miles of the Amazon rainforest. He volunteered to lead an infantry in World War I at age 59. He took up boxing, rowing, polo, horseback riding. One time when Roosevelt was giving a speech, someone shot him in the chest shot him and he looked it didn't hit his lung it didn't hit any organs he was bleeding and then he got up and he kept going for an hour and a half i don't know about you when i look at somebody like teddy roosevelt a man of that level of achievement and drive boy it makes me feel pretty small you know some days it feels like an accomplishment just that i woke up and put on clothes and if we can't achieve the extreme of Roosevelt, we can fall into the other extreme. Maybe this other extreme, I think it might be encapsulated well by a character from the film Dodgeball, a true underdog story. That is the modern-day philosophizer, Peter Lafleur. Mr. Lafleur's philosophy of life is that if you have a goal, you might not reach it. But if you don't have a goal, you are never disappointed. 
You know, so much of life requires a balance. Area after area, there are ditches on both sides of the road that we can fall into if we're not careful. You know, in life, in all of life that faces us, we can fall into the ditch of attempting to tackle all of life relentlessly and tirelessly, all on our own effort and ability. Or we can fall into the ditch of simply throwing up our hands in resignation, saying it's too hard, I'm just not going to do anything. And we see this in, even in our stay-at-home days of late. You know, the people who were tireless and restless before are now tireless and restless now. Maybe they have to stay at home, but they are aggressively hunting for some sort of side hustle or alternative form of income that they can do from home. Or the other extreme, people now get to stay at home, they throw up their hands, and they indulge in what we know as binging. And somehow binge, that word has become an acceptable word in our vocabulary. These ditches, we see them everywhere in all of life. The question for us, just in light of that, and like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Peter LaFleur, restlessness, resignation. How do we see all of life that it is, all of the challenges, all of the often just crummy parts of life? How do we see life for all that it is, work hard, and yet not be restless? How do we see life for all that it is, to work hard, but actually get sleep. To, to be realistic about some of the crummy parts, but not to despair. How do we do that? God's word gives us direction. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. And we're going to begin a series called Drawing Near to God in the Psalms. Each week, we're going to pick out a psalm and we are going to mine it for what it says about how we draw near to God in a certain season, in a certain way, or for a certain goal. Drawing near to God in the psalms. And this week, drawing near to God when under duress. When under duress. And and you know, there are a ton of psalms that we could choose from for this topic because unlike what some people say, life for God's people involves a lot of distress. But thankfully, it also involves even more of God's mercy. And we see that in Psalm 3. So follow along as I read God's word. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. 
main point for today. The Lord gives peace, rest, and confidence in the midst of trouble. The Lord gives peace, rest, and confidence in the midst of trouble. We have to decide whether we'll focus on what overwhelms us or whether we will draw near to God. Three T's for our time this morning. First, terror in verses 1 to 2. Second, turn in verses 3 to 4. And finally, trust in verses 5 to 8. First up, terror in verses 1 to 2. Even before verse 1, you find that this is the first psalm with a title. And the titles themselves are a part of the original text. So we see in the opening line, even before verse 1, we see the author and we see the occasion of this psalm. Psalm, that word, we see the collection for the whole book, Psalms. The title of the collection means praises. And when it says a psalm of David here, that's actually a slightly different word. It's closer to the word for song. It's a praise accompanied by music. So you see that word salah at the end of uh, every stanza in this song. Um, That's likely a musical term, giving some kind of musical direction. So the title as a whole, a psalm of David. When he fled Absalom, his son. So, from the very start of Psalm 3, we're told that this psalm has a backstory. We get to dig deeper in that backstory by looking at the book of 2 Samuel, around 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 17. But even before looking at 2 Samuel, we can find that just from this title, Fleeing from Your Son, that wouldn't exactly make the highlight reel of David's life. Your son hunting you to kill you. But let's look at 2 Samuel briefly. Here we have 2 Samuel, a mess on David's hands. David's family was very complicated. One of David's sons raped one of his half-sisters. Absalom was upset by that. Absalom killed that brother, and now Absalom's trying to take the throne of his father. So listen to how, what David says when he is fleeing from Absalom in 2 Samuel 15. He says, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape of from, for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Later on in 2 Samuel 15, it says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. That's the backdrop of Psalm 3. It's a very bleak backdrop, isn't it? It includes the loss of a son. It includes increasing disloyalty to a king. And this backdrop includes rumors about this king that God left him just like God left the king who came before him, King Saul. And what's even more humbling for King David at this point in Psalm 3, at this point in his life, was all of this bleak backdrop was in large part his own fault. This was all a result of David's own sin, his sin of adultery and murder. God promised David after that happened 
David, you will experience, there will be consequences for this sin. There will be effects of this sin. Evil will come upon your house, and here it is. But when we actually get into the meat of this psalm, and we look just at the first two verses, just at the first two verses of Psalm 3, what word stands out there? Should be pretty easy to see. That's right, it's, it's that word, many. David uses it three times. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying. Many. Worry and being overwhelmed find strength in numbers. David has multiplying opposition who are ready to attack, who are ready to even demoralize him, undermining his confidence in God. They want to make David doubt his salvation, his relationship with God. They speak a word against his soul, his inner being. And in wanting David to doubt his own salvation, this in turn would tempt David to begin to believe lies about God himself. More on that later. But this is the situation. It's a shame, though, that none of us can really relate to this, though, isn't it? We don't live in the ancient Middle East. We're not kings. We don't deal with imminent military threats and coups. Maybe you just put this to bed here. Close it up. This is just an ancient document, out of touch with modern-day realities. Well, sure. We, our experience can't correlate one-to-one with King David's. But all of us can relate to experiencing opposition. All of us can relate to experiencing being overwhelmed. And that's what David is in here. All of us are promised, like Paul tells Timothy, everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be opposed. A lot of us like to quote those words of Jesus, you know, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We focus on the second part of that statement, which is the part we should focus on. It's a sweet promise, a sweet reality, but we skip over that first part. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Facing plenty of foes, plenty of opposition, overwhelmed. Plenty of areas in our lives where this might apply. Facing opposition, being overwhelmed. We think of our work. Right now, you think of your work. Facing opposition, being overwhelmed. In a time when a lot of people are uncertain whether or not they will keep their jobs, would that not insert just a, maybe however subtle, of a new dynamic of opposition and competition between employees of proving their work and their worth? In a time of uncertainty, maybe some people lost their jobs, but a lot of other people, they have new loads and burdens to carry at their jobs, overwhelmed. Overwhelmed in opposition. We say this is at work, area after area. We could face this at our homes, in our families. For some of us, that's ground zero. For some of us, we might be the only Christian in our house, and that can bring opposition. However subtle or however obvious, it is there. We face opposition and being overwhelmed. We face many foes. How many are my foes? We might not have political combatants to deal with. We might not have rebels to deal with. But all of us face the foes of the world, the devil, 
the flesh. The Bible makes that clear over and over again. And Christian, I know you might know this, but it is good to remember that this opposition is real. The world, the devil, the flesh. How many are my foes? You know, when the Bible speaks of the world being as a foe or an enemy, it speaks of the world as a system created by people in opposition to God. And sure, this does. This comes in the form of outright opposition to God, outright opposition to Christians, people who don't like Christians, governments that don't like Christians, that mistreat Christians, that torture, arrest, and kill Christians. And we shouldn't skip over that aspect of the world. But the foe of the world that most of us face, that many of us face, that we're unaware of it, is the world in its seductive form. The world offering alternative narratives to us that pull us away from the truth. The world that feeds us and puts in front of us the ideals of what is a good and comfortable and easy and successful life. The world, our culture especially, is what upholds and fuels our innate selfishness. That everything is about us. Everything is about me. Self-focus, self-help, self-esteem. Everything is about us. Even our good works are about making us, me, feel better. Even if that's just the subtle motivation in the back of our heads. The world makes sin seem normal and godliness seem strange, weird, or even wrong. That's the foe of the world. We face the foe or the enemy of Satan, the one who prowls around, roaring like a lion, seeking to see who he may devour. We face the deceiver, the tempter, who gives empty promises about sin, telling us lies about God. He is the accuser who switches tunes very quickly when we do sin. He brings up our past. He lies about God's forgiveness. We face the foe of Satan. And we face the foe or the enemy of our flesh, ourselves, our own nature. You know, like a lot of middle-class, white, suburban families, my family, I, I grew up going to vacation in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Every couple years or so, we would head down to Myrtle Beach, and like everybody else who spends a day at the beach, you know, they set up shop on the sand, get the chairs ready, get the towels ready, and then we head out into the water. We try as best as we could to catch a wave, body surf all the way into the shore. But after you spend 20 minutes or so, if, if you're not paying attention, if you're not careful, when you're swimming in the ocean, you can end up hundreds of feet, if not hundreds of yards, down shore away from where you set up camp on the beach. Why is that? It was because of the undertow in the water that lies underneath the surface that we might not feel, but it is there that pulls us away. Because our flesh is an undertow of sin. It operates all the time. It's way stronger than we give credit for. And if we are not careful, if we are not paying attention, it will pull us away from God towards sin. Listen to James 1.15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. O Lord, how many are my foes? 
You know, so often in life, we just, just drift. We drift unaware of the opposition against us. We drift unaware of this undertow. Just because we aren't aware of it doesn't mean that it's there. But there are times, though, when wave after wave comes crashing down and all of a sudden we are very much aware of the opposition against us. To mix the metaphors just a little bit, we can be like pack mules carrying cargo, unaware of the cargo until it keeps on stacking on top of one another and we slower and slower and eventually we just feel crushed underneath its weight. How many are my foes? To mix the metaphor again, we can feel like life is just this giant bowl of spaghetti. You just place a mound of spaghetti on that bowl and you're told to eat the whole thing. And you keep eating it and eating it. You, like a right Italian, you, lose, you use a spoon and swirl it up and you eat it. And just the mound doesn't get smaller. Opposition. Feeling overwhelmed. This was the reality for David. For David, there was terror. There was opposition. It was multiplying. It was overwhelming. It was even demoralizing. And you know, the takeaway of verses 1 to 2 actually comes, I think, in the first two words. You see those? You might brush past those. Oh, Lord. The takeaway of these opening verses is that they're addressed to God. They're addressed to God. The takeaway is David's simple, but yet so hard to practice act of telling this to the Lord, of saying, God, this is my situation and I am terrified of it. I am overwhelmed. This is how I'm feeling about it. And what if we disciplined ourselves, friends, to pray before we talk and stew in what overwhelms us? What if we disciplined ourselves to have the instinct, the reaction to pray before we look at what overwhelms? Leads well into the next point, to turn. You know, one of the ways we become overwhelmed is by listening to and focusing on solely what overwhelms us. So imagine if this psalm, Psalm 3, imagine if Psalm 3 ended with verse 2. David would be crushed in despair. David would not just believe lies about himself, but worse, David would believe lies about God. You know, people can say bad things about David all they wanted. His, uh, his enemies could say bad things about David all they wanted. They didn't know the half of the stuff that David did. But to say that God can't forgive David, that God can't save David. Uh, that's another story. If Psalm 3 ended at verse 2, it would be devastating. But it doesn't end at verse 2, does it? It keeps going. And, and there's a shift. There's a turn. We even see it at the beginning of verse 3 in the word, but... There is a turn. David takes his eyes off of what he's in the thick of and turns to stare at and talk to the Lord. And we can almost hear David's mind going and David's heart working and talking to and staring at God. We can hear David asking just the simple questions, just taking stock, asking in his heart, okay, 
Who is God? Who is God? And who is God for me? And what has God promised? And how does he relate to me? David turns and he sees all of who God is and how that contrasts and speaks to his situation. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, a shield about me. Foes and enemies multiplying, overwhelming, surrounding David. But the Lord is a shield about him. And a shield is an appropriate image for God. It's it's an oft-used image of God. A shield is help and protection that doesn't come from you. It comes from outside of you. And very often for warriors in that day and age, a shield would literally be carried by a person besides you. That's how it was for Goliath. That's even how it was for King Saul. David was an armor bearer for King Saul. Help outside of you, a shield about him. But you see, even a normal shield can't do justice to what the Lord is. So you think a normal shield, it provides you protection on one side. Not protection from on top, not protection from the sides, not protection from behind. No, but, but the Lord is different. The Lord is a shield about David, around David. The Lord's protection is not just on one side. It is on all sides. It is all-encompassing. But you, O Lord, turning, but you, O Lord, are my glory. My glory. Now, what does that mean? Again, I think it helps us to know how this speaks to David's situation, how this contrasts to what overwhelms David. David's many foes sought to take away his honor and glory. They sought to defame his reputation. They sought to make him doubt his standing before God. But the source of any goodness and honor and glory for David didn't come from the opinions of people. It came from the unchanging favor of God. David's glory was not in the opinions of men. It was in God. Let me just press pause on this for a moment. Pause on this for a moment. Think of this. Our glory is in God. Think of this when you are timid and hesitant to live out your faith in Jesus. Think of this. So what if people oppose you? So what? So what if people think you're weird? So what if you're misunderstood? So what if things get awkward? Along with Paul, we say, if possible, be at peace with all people. But that's not always possible. And you know what? That's okay. Our glory is not in the opinions and favor of people. Our glory is in the unchanging favor of God, won for us by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, glorying in the favor and the opinions of people is honestly a dumb thing to do anyway. Because the opinions in favor of people change on a dime. Can you imagine if Jesus did this? You know, Jesus, the Lord, you imagine if he did that? He, he's got his ups and downs from what people thought about him, even during his earthly ministry. 
at the end of his life, he was abandoned. Nobody followed him. At the end of his life, he heard cries of Hosannas. And then just a few days later, he heard cries of crucify him. Oh, being loved by people, it's a sweet gift. Oh, friends, it is shifting sand to build your life and happiness and glory on. Do not do that. Hear the words of Jesus. Don't glory in men. Instead, glory that your name is written in heaven because of Christ your Savior. I'm going to press play again. But you, David's turned, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You think of what we read very briefly about David in 1 Samuel 15, when all this stuff with Absalom was happening. happening. David walked away from Jerusalem, weeping, barefoot, with his head covered. The man was dejected, his head bowed down. But God lifts up. God lifts up his head. And you know, we know the life of David even before this point. There's a lot of life that David has happened before this point. And we know that God has done this for David before. God has lifted up David's head before this. David's the one who wrote of God in Psalm 23, that God restores my soul. David's the one who wrote in Psalm 51, after stewing in the sin of murder and adultery, that God is the one who can renew a right spirit within me. That God is the one who can restore the joy of my salvation. Now, David was a man well acquainted with what it was, means to be broken, what it means to be downtrodden. But he also experienced over and over again what it means for God's kindness and care to lift up his head again. And Christian, I would wager that you have experienced this as well, over and over again, lifted your head. So I urge you, I urge you just to create a file in your heart. You know, get out one of those, you just picture in your mind a file folder and label it times that my kind father lifted up my head and fill up that folder and store it in the cabinet of your heart and you pull out that file and flip through it the next time your head is bowed down and dejected and you turn and see the Lord, the lifter of your head. David is turned from looking at the opposition against him to now looking at the God who is for him. You know, so many times we get in trouble because we look at the wrong place. We see this over and over again in the Bible, including, again, like we just saw last week. I know we picked them out last week, but the Israelites in the wilderness. We can look, out, look to them as negative examples just because we so often see ourselves in these people. Numbers 13, infamous chapter. Moses sends out 12 spies into the promised land to just scope it out. All right, guys, go and check this out and tell me what it's like. So when the spies came back, gave their report, 10 of these spies said, yeah, this is, this is great. This is a great land. It's full of good stuff. It's everything we've been waiting for. But, but there are these people there. And these people there are huge. They are giants. 
These people there could probably bench press my house. And you know, the land's great and all, but these people are really huge, so we should probably just hang out here. Maybe we should head back to Egypt. Ten of the spies said that. But two of the spies said, yeah, this is, this is the land we've all been waiting for. And you're sure there, there's this army of giants in this land, but, but you know what? We, we have the God who split the Red Sea. We saw it. We have the God who delivered us from slavery in Egypt. We experienced it. We lived it. And we have the God who we have heard him say, he is promising us this land. Let's go in. Ten of them focused on the opposition against them. Two of them focused on the God who is for them. David continues in verse 4, turning. Turn to God. In verse 4, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord. I cried aloud to the Lord. Friends, do not skip over this line. I know Psalm 3 is short. You could probably read Psalm 3 in a matter of seconds. I cried aloud to the Lord. Get out of your own head. Stop listening to all you tell yourself about what overwhelms you. Stop listening to all the lies about God. We are so vulnerable and prone to believe. And turn again to look at the truth about God and then actually talk to him. You know, I'm all for praying in your heart. That's biblical. That's fine. But my goodness, pray out loud. When David saw who God was, it drove him to pray to God. And when we stare at God in the word and see who he is and hear what he says, we can't help but to speak back. This is the heartbeat of the Psalms. It's the heartbeat of the Bible. Theology, looking at God and praying in response. Theology and praising. Theology and living Christian, is this your heartbeat? Is this your heartbeat? Oh, it should be. And it can be. Do you open your Bible with, with eager expectation to look at God, to hear what he says, and before you close that Bible, do you pray back to him in response? Why not? Why don't you do that? When we stare at the word and see who God is, this isn't just knowledge for our head. It's knowledge for our hearts. It's knowledge for all of life. Please learn about God. Stare at him. Know him better. And the true knowledge of God leads to praying to him. True knowledge of God leads to clinging to what you know to be true about him all the time, especially in the midst of opposition and being overwhelmed. David has turned. Turned to see God for who he is, cries aloud to God, and he says at the close of verse 4, and he answered me from his holy hill. He answered me from his holy hill. It's another line. Don't skip over this. Don't lose just the appreciation, the gratitude, the wonder, the joy that the God of the universe hears his children and responds to them. And David says that God answered him from his holy hill. This is Mount Zion in Jerusalem where the throne was. And David heard many voices at this time. 
Many voices of his opposition and their plans and their schemes. But the decree that he listened to is the decree that would stand. The decree of God Almighty. I remember playing basketball and baseball in the Middlebury Heights Rec League growing up uh, and lots of memories from that. Uh, posters and banners hung on the side of the courts, hung on the sides of fences, you know, they're full of sports cliches. And one that I remember recently, just in light of this, was sports don't build character, sports reveal character. It's a little simplistic, but I, I think true. If you want to see, for example, some of the sin struggles of pastors in training at seminary, put them on a basketball court and watch what happens, believe me. Sports like life will inevitably bring pressure, opposition, being overwhelmed. And the question is, what's going to come out of us when we are under pressure, when we are overwhelmed? Even in the genuinely hard and difficult circumstances of life, God has many kindnesses for us in them, including the kindness that he does not mean the hard and difficult circumstances of life to draw us, to push us away from him. Rather, he means them to draw us closer to him. That's what happened for David. David turned. David turned to God. Oh, friend, when is the last time you really did that? You really did that. When is the last time you really looked at God and it left you changed? It left you weeping. It left you breathless. It left you singing with joy. It left you on your knees confessing and praising and thanking God. When is the last time you really turned to God. And Christian brother and sister, you ask yourself, what if you really turn to God every day? Every day. You wouldn't be satisfied with a, a haphazard Christianity. You really turn to God every day. If you stopped treating the word of God like some kind of horoscope, getting just a little bit, and then poof, on your way, off you go with your own agenda. And you started treating the word of God for what it actually is. Words from God, God's self-revelation of himself, God's way of salvation, God's nourishment to his people. What if you stopped treating prayer like some little cute and rote thing, you know, saying my prayers, telling God the same old things about the same old things, and what if you actually treated prayer like you know the God you're praying to? What if you really did that? There are going to be days when we stink at this. There are going to be days when we stink at this. But we must do this. We must. And Christian, you can do this. There are going to be days we stink at this, but our Father is kind. You think David turned to God. David turned to God, praying to him aloud about a situation that was his fault. 
Our Father is kind, forgiving. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has opened the throne room of grace. Why won't you go in? Jesus died for you to do this. The Spirit is in you to do this. The church is around you to help you do this. Turn to God. You must do this. You can do this. But having turned to God, turned from looking at what terrorized him and turned toward looking at the Lord, how was David changed? Well, in the second half of the psalm, we see our third T. We see David's renewed trust. Trust. And we see how trusting the Lord changed David. And I think we could see at least four ways this changed David. First, having turned to God, talked to him, now trusting him, it changed David in that it allowed David to rest. He goes to sleep. He goes to sleep. This is different from distracting himself with activity. This is different from trying to scheme all the ways that he can control his life and his own situation. This is different from distracting himself by numbing his mind, masking the situation. This is not the idol of productivity, neither is it the idol of sloth. This is sleep. By sleeping and resting, we communicate that we trust in the one who doesn't sleep and doesn't need to sleep. Listen to David in the next psalm, the very next psalm, Psalm 4, verse 8. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 121, verse 4. He who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. Christian, are you restless? Are you tireless? Are you sleepless? I'll tell you something. I think God wants us to know this. It is not all on you to solve all the problems today. It is not on you to save the world. It is not on you to sustain the world. There's somebody else who does that. And that is God. So be faithful, yes. Then come and get rest. Listen to the words of Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables. He says, sleep in peace. God is awake. And with each night of sleep, we have new evidence that God sustains us, as David says. We have new evidence that God gives us new more mercies each morning. And out of our Father's kindness, each night of sleep, we have new evidence that God manages just fine without us. David's trust in God gives him sleep. Secondly, it gives him courage and confidence. Verse 6, 
I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Can you just picture this image in your mind? Maybe Brown Stadium, the 80 or 90,000 people that it holds, filled to capacity, and it's just you standing on the logo on the 50-yard line, and everybody there has swords or some kind of medieval weapon and is all bloodthirsty for you. And you say that statement. I'm going to ask you the question with the simple logic that is really hard to press down in our hearts. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Do you let that question sit with you? Do you let that question just steep in you, marinate in you? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Commenting on this verse, James Boyce tells us the, uh, the story of Martin Luther when he was summoned to the city of Worms to answer for his quote-unquote heretical teaching of the gospel. Luther's friends tried to warn him not to go to the city that it wouldn't be safe, but Martin Luther replied, even if there should be as many devils and Worms as tiles upon the housetops, still I would enter it. This is the same man, Luther, who wrote the line in his hymn, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed to triumph through us. Courage, confidence, these are Christian virtues. David's trust in God gives him sleep. It gives him confidence and courage. And thirdly, it gives him renewed prayer. Renewed prayer. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And we might read those verses and it kind of seems like a strange prayer for when he was resting in God. But, you know, trusting in God doesn't mean saying, all right, God, whatever will be, will be. No, David is confident in God and that's what drives him to pray. We are confident that the God who is for us and with us and promises to protect us and deliver us works through the means of his people's prayers to accomplish his purposes. That's what gives us confidence to pray. This is seen in David. It's seen all over the Bible. I think it's especially seen in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, for example, when the apostles Peter and John were in prison, God's people prayed for their release, and God's people prayed for boldness. And you remember how God's people addressed God at that moment. They called God Sovereign Lord. They said, the one who made everything, the one who will get victory. Knowing all that about God, that didn't keep them from praying. That's what led them to pray. That's what gave them confidence to pray. Renewed prayer comes from trust in God. Fourthly, David's trust in God gave him assurance. Assurance, both for himself and for others. You take a look at the second half of verse 7. It says, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David here pictures his enemies as some kind of wild beast. Like the lions and bears he faced as a young boy who was a shepherd. His foes are real, they're strong, they're ferocious, they're vicious, they're multiplying. 
But he says here, God has broken their jaw and removed their teeth. This is, po- this is poetic. Here, David is saying, God has put it out of his enemy's power to do any real harm. They can't bite down. They don't have teeth. They can't touch me if God is for me, even if I die. As God assures David of his safety and his deliverance, David closes by extending that assurance to others. You see, salvation and deliverance aren't reserved for David alone. They are for anyone who trusts in the Lord. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Friends, just for a second, remember who David was. He's the king of Israel that Israel had longed for for years He's the king through whom God defeated enemy after enemy. He's the king who established the capital city of Jerusalem. He's the king who was called a man after God's own heart. And yet this man, David, learned that it wasn't about him. Blessing and salvation and deliverance do not belong to David. They belong to the Lord. Christian, Remember who you trust in. And friend, this morning, if you're not sure of what your relationship is with God, what your standing is before God, hear the words of Psalm 3, verse 8, and see what it doesn't say. Salvation does not belong to vaccines. Salvation doesn't belong to government, to news, to riches, to success, to family, to self-esteem, to pleasure, to beauty, to health. Salvation does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. As you turn from whatever you're trusting in to whatever you're living for and turn toward the living God who's made himself known in his son, Christ Jesus. And this is a good note to end on. We should end on a note of zooming out. We've zoomed in to focus on Psalm 3. We can zoom out at the panorama of the whole Bible and just ask, how much greater can the Christian experience Psalm 3? How much sweeter does Jesus allow Psalm 3 to be for us so that we can turn from what opposes us to the one who is for us? Think for a moment of our king, of our king. He's different from Absalom. He's not the son who rebelled. He is the son of God who who did not assert his own privilege. He is the one who trusted his father's will and came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who, like David, faced enemies, but faced enemies who were many. And unimaginable. David didn't face enemies of his own, or Jesus didn't face enemies of his own fault or his own doing. No, Jesus faced the full wrath of God, not for his own sin, but for the sins of his people. And Jesus, like David, had his head bowed down, but Jesus' head was not lifted up. Jesus, like David, cried aloud to God. But Jesus' cry was not answered. 
Instead of God striking Jesus' enemies, God struck him so that his enemies, us, could go free. Oh friend, how much better is the shield of faith that Christ provides? How much sweeter is the promised victory that he brings? That Jesus has removed the power of sin and death. And how much greater is the assurance that God is for us that Jesus brings? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? O soul, are you wearied and troubled? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord. Teach us full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. And God, we are sorry that we often wallow in self-pity, are often lacking faith in you, often are too slow to turn to you. Father, we bank, we count on your kindness and grace. Without it, we would fall. So we come back to you again, turn again to see who you are. The kind, strong, righteous, holy, sovereign God you are. Having looked at you, help us trust in you and change us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.